0: The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. How much do we need each other and at what cost? I mean, how much are we willing to pay in order to have relationship with each other? In the current climate and culture we live in with, let's see, political protests and hateful marches and one of the greatest refugee crisis in history, certainly the largest since World War II, and then you add on to that all of the keyboard warriors spreading their hate from their mother's basement, we live in a culture and a time when it not only feels like other people are an obstacle, but even an enemy. And in that process, we begin to ask deep questions. Who can I trust and to whom can I be vulnerable? Meaning who am I really willing to invest in order to have them in my life? What relationships are worth having? And which people are worth keeping at an arm's length? And so let me just give you um, a historical glimpse. I'm gonna bring you back to the first and second century when plagues were spreading across the Roman Empire. And by tens of thousands, people were dropping dead. And so if, if you were present in that time and you, you were kind of doing some research, here's what you would have quickly discovered. In those spans of time, those two centuries, uh, if you were in Carthage uh, in the Roman Empire, a third of the population died from the, the, those plagues. Uh, In Alexandria, the report said that nearly two-thirds of the population perished, and in the outlying villages around the region of Alexandria, they had 100% mortality rates. That means everybody died. And that wasn't just around Alexandria. That was in many of the outlying villages in and around the Roman Empire. And so you have tens of thousands of people perishing from these horrible, horrible plagues. And what is worse about this is not just that people are dying, but how people reacted in fear to each other, even to those they loved. So historians would write that at the first onset of sickness a family member, a loved one, would drag their family member into the street and leave them there to die. Now, obviously the thinking was survival, right? I mean, if my spouse is sick, Not only are they going to die, which is already—it's too late. They already have the disease. So let's protect our children from that person infecting the rest of us. So what they would do is they would put them out in the street. Unfortunately, without nursing, without any care, the person—the mortality rate skyrocketed, and and. If you were to then go even further, the historians would write this, and I made some notes just to make sure you don't kind of miss the feeling of this story. One of the historians wrote this about this season of the plagues. He said, here we are, this is uh, regarding the region of Alexandria, the city of Alexandria. He said, here we are in the city of death. All around us, our family and friends are dropping, and we can never be sure if or when we will fall sick too. In the midst of such appalling circumstances, humans are driven to ask why and what happens next. Our pagan priests profess ignorance. Worse yet, many of those priests have fled this city, as have the highest civil authorities and the wealthiest families which only adds to the disorder and suffering. So you just picture this. Here, in a a season of time when people needed those in authority, they needed the religious leaders, they needed the wealthy, they needed the, the leadership of a city the most, that's when people who could afford to get out got out and left the rest to themselves. And as a result, people just turned on each other, just trying to survive. And I, I realize that, you know, I, I can't imagine that any of you have dragged someone you loved into the street or, you know, pushed someone out of the house to die. But I wonder how many of us treat each other as though they have the plague. I mean, when was the last time maybe you interacted with someone online or you heard a conversation and you just treated them like, they're a di- like they have a disease, and so we distance ourselves from each other in order to protect ourselves and in order to survive and and so here's what we do we isolate ourselves from each other and we insulate ourselves from those who are not like us, those who have different views, those who have different attitudes, those who have a different religion, those who are just, in some way, we feel that they're infectious. We push ourselves away from them to insulate ourselves from their views, from their disease, from their problems, whatever it is, and we create a, a social distance. We create a, an emotional separation and we spend our lives living insulated and separate separated from the others. So relationships are good. Friendships are meaningful so long as they're convenient. But they're disposable as soon as they get in the way of our desires and our interests. No? If you had an option to get a promotion or to protect your relationships... In America, what do we choose? And so having had the privilege of traveling around to different parts of the world, working with some of the poorest people on the planet, I have seen, yeah, they might not have all we have. And I'm not necessarily saying they're so much happier than us, but they do have something powerful, a deep and profound sense of community. Because they can't afford to move away and get something better and upgrade, and and, and they don't have all the conveniences, but we don't have all the community. And so I've thought about, you know, what is the trade-off and what are we willing to give to have meaningful, true, authentic relationships rather than treating people as disposable. And and so I want to bring you to a passage of scripture. We've been going through the um, kind of the the memories of King David as, he, as he's coming toward the end of his life, the last chapters of David's life. Uh, and, and we're looking in the Bible at some of those last moments where David's life is recorded. And we're looking in the book of 2 Samuel. It's a book of history, but it's more than history, it's sacred history because it doesn't just tell the story of man, it tells the story of how God interacts with man. And God chose this guy, David, to become the great king of the nation of Israel. David, who went from being a shepherd farm boy to becoming the greatest king in the nation, along the way fought incredible battles. And now here he is at the end of his life, laying in his deathbed, and he's recounting to the people he cares about some of his best principles and favorite memories. So the first thing he does is he points everybody to God. And then he goes back and you kind of hear an account of his different great memories and moments. And in that, there's this this one, and I'm just going to bring it right to you. Uh, we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 17 through 19. And let me first just read it to you. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Chief of the three, uh, here we go, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zuri, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. So, you know, here's David laying his deathbed. He's kind of going through the stories, and he, he remembers this guy Abishai, and he's like, man, that dude man i remember we were fighting he he went up against one of our enemies and he killed 300 of them on his own now it sounds like a tall tale right i mean this guy sounds like a william wallace seven feet tall and he shoots fire from his eyes we'll stop right there um here we go uh he was not held in greater was he not held in greater honor than the three he became their commander even though he was not included among them and I, i just as i was reading through this i paused and i went huh That's interesting. Here's this guy who's like this great warrior. He becomes commander of the three mightiest men under David. And then there's like this little footnote. He was more famous than they were, yet he wasn't included among them. And so how would you respond? Here you've built an incredible resume, you fought with the king, you put blood on the battlefield, and then there's like this, you get this feeling of like tension. The sense of like, he's in charge, but he doesn't even get his name listed among them. He's always kind of on the outside looking in and maybe that's how you live. Maybe you feel like you've bled and you've worked and you've tried really hard to develop meaningful relationships. Maybe you've said I'm sorry one too many times and you've gotten frustrated about it. Maybe you've, you feel like you're giving all you've got and it's just never enough. And for some reason, maybe like Abishai, you feel like you've spent time with people, you've fought battles with people, maybe you've even given and worked, but yet you're still living your life, feeling like you're on the outside looking in. You want to be part, you want to belong, but you never quite feel like you are part. And yet here's what I see as I read this story and this account. As David continues, so he tells the story of these three mightiest men, tells the story of Abishai, and then he's just going to keep going down the list until he just starts naming names. He just starts recounting all of his great friends, all these great warriors. And what I appreciate is that even though you and I read it as just a long list, what if you started listing all of your closest friends or or your best memories with people that you enjoyed spending time with, and, and you just wrote their name down? Like every name, it's more than a name, isn't it? It's like a memory. It's like a touching story. Maybe, maybe some of your favorite me- memories from high school or from college. I, I know I have a list of. If I just say their name, I just start laughing, like it's a hysterical moments. Like, or if I say their name, I'm like, oh, oh, I remember. Oh. You know, right? Like, and that's what David's doing. He just lists all these names, and here's what I want you to take away. Here's the principle. Here's what comes off the pages of a list of names and David's memory of going, man, I remember this guy and this guy and this guy and Abishai. Yeah, he was commander of them even though he wasn't among them. And yet, man, Abishai. And then he goes Benaniah and then this guy and bam. And here it is. You want want to know what the point is? We are courageous together. Think about it. What's your experience if you had to take a great risk, maybe, maybe it was a question of investment or you're gonna take this really big risk about maybe asking her out, or what should you say to him? Or you know, should I ask, should I pop the question? Or I don't know, maybe, maybe like struggling in your marriage, like should we have a baby? And you know what we all do? We ask someone. Why? Because we're more courageous together. Other people spur us on, and it bring people can either bring out your best or bring out your worst. Either way, you find yourself uh, expressing the most extreme versions of your faith and your fears around people. Here is the challenge. While we want meaningful relationships and we want deep friendships, it is impossible to truly have deep, meaningful community and right relationship on our own. Why? Because you and I have a core driving nature, meaning what is at the very depth of who we are, that actually wrecks relationships. If you've been hurt, you hurt people. Right, I have a little, we have a little phrase we use on our leadership team, and I teach it to my kids. Hurting people hurt people. So if someone's hurting you, the reason is they're a hurting person. That doesn't excuse their behavior, but it does put it in perspective, doesn't it? It kind of helps you go, oh, I get it. Maybe they're hurting, and that's why they're being hurtful. So what happens is we've all been hurt. You carry hurt, rejection, abuse, misuse, you have felt taken advantage of, you've had people talk behind your back, you've had people spread rumors around you, lie about you, right? And as a result, whatever comes in, comes out. The, the source of all of that stuff that sabotages relationships, it's called sin. Sin is the driving force in every one of our lives that makes it impossible to have true, authentic, and deep, meaningful relationships. Sin doesn't just wreck relationships with each other or stir deep depression, fear, self-doubt, insecurity inwardly. Sin cuts us off from relationship with God. And as a result of sin that cuts us off from relationship with God, we live our lives carrying the sentence of death on us toward a forever judgment. So sin wrecks relationship with each other, wrecks relationship with God, causes distress and turmoil in our minds and our emotions, and leaves us on a crash course trajectory with eternal judgment. That's the bad news. The good news is that God did not want to spend forever outside of relationship with you. So he intervened in our story by becoming one of us. Jesus Christ came to earth for the express purpose of giving his life, dying on the battlefield of sin. So that by doing what? By taking our collective death sentence on himself. So that when he died, he died in our place. He went into our battle, fought for us. He died for us so that his death became the payment for the judgment we owed because of our wrongdoing and sin, so that when Jesus died, he died once for all, so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins. That internal drive that leads us to sabotage relationships, sabotage relationship with God, and wrecks us from the inside out, he forgives us of that sin that drives our life, and transforms us so that instead of sin driving our life, now God's spirit drives our life. How? Because when you believe in Jesus by faith, he not only forgives you of sin, but he gives you his spirit. His spirit enters into our spirit, which gives us true and eternal life. The good news of Jesus Christ changes every aspect of our life. Let me abbreviate that. Jesus changes everything. Allow me to illustrate it. I'm going to take a story that I heard and I'm gonna leave out some pivotal details because people's lives are very much on the line and so we're trying to protect the the information here. But this is an account of a missionary, one of our partner missionaries that is in an incredibly sensitive country where terrorists are being trained. So all around this particular missionary, everywhere they go, they're constantly interacting with people who are training to blow up uh, Americans and other civilians. And uh, in, in this country, Uh, Right now, there are these small little, uh, they they don't call them Bible studies, but they have another name for them. And there's these little groups of up to eight individuals, 80% of whom are former terrorists, and in this particular country, uh, imams, the leaders of some of the mosques and these terrorist training camp camps are being won to Jesus. And uh, of this, this story just happened. So we're getting word. This is like a couple months ago. Uh, two young men who were in a terrorist training camp saw the change in their imams' lives so much so that they became curious about the change. The imams invited them out to their Bible study where these two young men gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, if that's not a good reason to pause and celebrate, but let me tell you the rest of the story. Hold up, check this out. These two guys um, become radically changed, baptized and start being bold witnesses of Jesus. In the process, the terrorist group that they came out of heard about them converting got information about their homes and the store that they work in and blew them up. Blew up their houses and blew up the store. Uh, It did not kill these two young men. They could have quietly just gone on with their lives, but they decided they wanted to make a statement. So they, they found out, they researched the individuals who blew up their home and their store, and they found out there was three men They went to each of their homes and made Molotov cocktails and put the Molotov cocktail on each of the doorsteps with a lighter and a note. They never lit the Molotov cocktail and the note read this way. We understand that you are responsible for burning down our houses. We could have done the same to yours, but we have found Jesus and he tells us to forgive you So we have. If you want to find out more about who Jesus is and how he has changed our lives, here are our phone numbers, please call. We would love to tell you more about Jesus. That's like, I mean, that's like right now in the world around us, this is happening. Why? Because Jesus changes everything about relationships. Jesus turns people that were formerly enemies into friends. That changes the whole story. That changes the whole outcome. So now let me push back into, the, into this little account, just these brief, brief few verses. And let's say, like, what can we learn from this story of David at the end of his life, looking back on his closest friends? Well, the most critical part of this is first, you can't give what you don't have. Hurting people are going to hurt people. The only way you can have deep, meaningful relationship is if you first have right relationship with God. So you receive relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, allowing God's spirit to enter into your spirit. Don't. Please don't go trying to have meaningful relationships with others outside of right relationship with God. If you do, you end up hurting the people around you that you want to love. But when you have right relationship with Jesus, then, like those two converted terrorists, you can become a radical witness of a new way of living, a new way of loving. So let's just jump back in. Verse uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8 and verse 17, just these two quick little glimpses, which reads this. These are the names of David's mighty men. And then it says, such were the exploits of the three mighty men. And then it just goes on and lists all of these names. And what is the point of this? Why would I even take time to read such simple verses? It's this. Here is the point. If we're courageous together, then this is what we've got to do. We have to get locked in to community. I would encourage you, please pause, take notes, write this down in your program, there's a place to take notes, study guide, pull out your smartphone or your tablet, trust me, I know you've got it in your hand anyway, so just type this in. If you're on social media, just pause what you're looking at right now. I know you're not even really connected with them anyway, you're just being a weird voyeur, all right? So just type this in on the comment section. I need to get locked in to community. Maybe another way of saying it would be, get locked in to sharing life together. We have to choose that being in community is better than anything else, and it makes us better. It makes us more courageous. We are more faithful and faith-filled when we are in community. Why do you think we gather? Why do you think we provide an online campus experience? Why do you think we have churches? Why do we think we're part of the larger church across the globe? Because we are, in, we are more courageous, faithful and faith filled together. We belong together. So what does it look like for you to be in community? It means first, you and I have to pause and say, how do I, now that I believe in Jesus Christ, begin to get in right relationship with others? Who do you need to say I'm sorry to? Who do you need to receive forgiveness from? Who do you need to extend forgiveness to? Now, I mean, if right now you're struggling, with whether or not you should or could forgive someone, I want you just to pause and think about the true story I just told you about two terrorists who had their houses blown up. I get it, you've been hurt. You've been violated. You've been mistreated. But you know what? What you're harboring inside is not just hurting the relationship, it's eating you up from within. Unforgiveness, bitterness, bitterness, is like drinking poison hoping to kill the other person. It doesn't hurt them, it destroys us. So that means we have to be willing to, and you can write this down, do the hard work of getting along. Look, every relationship is gonna hit obstacles. Don't quit now just because it got tough. Think about people that you feel the closest to. Isn't it because you went through tough times together? And so now the first time a conflict comes up with somebody you met in the church community, the first time you have an issue with your neighbor, you want nothing to do with them. Why not see, again, another quote, you can write down conflict is an opportunity for growth. Conflict is an opportunity to deepen your relationship and strengthen the bonds of friendship. Instead of seeing issues and conflicts as the problem, see them as an opportunity. So we're gonna do the hard work of getting along, forgiving each other, caring for each other, even when the going gets tough, but then we gotta take it a step further. We actually have to start sharing life together. That means you have to be able to carve out of your busy schedule time to just invest into each other, invest into the relationship, into investing into your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, people that you're gonna meet within our community of faith. That's right. You've got to be willing to work it into your crazy busy schedule and carve out an evening to just have someone over your house. And you know what? Don't even clean the house. Just leave. Don't waste the time. That time is precious. Don't waste it. Just have them over. It'll it'll actually mean more if you're not trying to put on a facade. Take them out for coffee, get up a little early and go out to breakfast with somebody. You know, if you can't, you can't afford to have them over for coffee, you can't afford to take them out to eat. Hey, ha- having been in countries where they are incredibly poor, they will literally have you over and they give you a little glass of uh, something to drink. I'm not gonna tell you what they give you to drink, but they like, meaning, meaning, they're not trying, they can't afford anything. So they give you what they have. Like, so what? Just, the point is, spend time together. Share life together. All right, let let me keep moving. That means we also have to be willing to care for and support each other. When you start building relationships, start investing into that relationship. So make yourself available. If they text you, reply back. If they call you, answer the phone. Have a real conversation. Be there to lift them up and to encourage them. Be there to pray for them and to support them in their times of need. If somebody's going through a difficult situation, show up, be, an, be a shoulder to cry on, be arms to lift people up. All right, now let me keep moving because I can't, I can't just stall there. There's, there's another point of this that's incredibly important, and that is that beyond just getting, getting locked into community, we also have to take the next step, which let me read it with this passage, right? So here it is. We're looking at this guy, Abishai. So he became as famous as the three, the three mightiest men. He was not, was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. All right, we're not gonna take a lot of time here. Let me just make the point. Here's Abishai. What's important is there's this huge army, all dear close friends of David, but they also have a rank, a role, and a responsibility. What does that mean? Get locked in to serving together. You know where people feel the greatest sense of belonging, the greatest sense of need? Warrior, soldiers and athletes. are in team sports, right? They have the greatest sense of camaraderie, right? Because they're in the thick of battle. They're in the thick of competition together. Everyone has a rank, a role, and a responsibility. Guess what? Within the kingdom of God, within the family of God, you have a rank, not so much a value placed on you, but you have a specific place of authority that God has put on you. You have a role, You were uniquely created for a specific purpose. So you have a responsibility to be the part that God has uniquely created you to be. And as you're doing your part, as you're functioning in your part, you are being, uh, you are functioning in your role, you are serving together, right? Because you're not just serving as an island, you're serving together, but you're doing your part. So you have to discover your part and you have to function your part. Understand that every one of you, I don't care if you're plugged in right now or not, If you're you're right now doing something within the local church, then give the most you can to it. Start inviting others to do it with you. If you're not, then this is your challenge. As you go through 2017, would you get locked in and commit to serving together as we serve each other and we serve the world around us? This is how God shows his love, through people who serve each other and serve the world around them, which means you have to discover your role and you have to discover your responsibility. I want to challenge you that you and I have to look past ourselves to see our part, to see our responsibility. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The author Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus this letter, and in this letter he makes this note. For we are his, God's, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying? He goes like this. Before you were born... God started writing the story of how he wanted to work through your life, and he wrote into your life good works before you were ever born so that as you're living your life through faith in Jesus Christ, you would walk in those good works, meaning we best serve in relationship together, doing good to and with others. I started by sharing with you the story of the plagues of the first and second century spreading all across the Roman Empire, decimating villages, decimating cities alike. The reason it did not destroy the entire known world. True story. You can look it up, read your own history books. You don't have to take my word for it. Here's what history records. Christians across these cities saw it as their responsibility to serve together. So as people were dying in the streets, Christians would walk out, lift them up, bring them into their own homes, and begin to care for the sick and the dying. One author, a historian, wrote this about this situation. "Most Most of our brother Christians showed unbounding love, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another heedless of danger they took charge of the sick they were infected with the diseases drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. want to know what happened There's a couple specific things that resulted in the care of Christians for the dying and the sick. First, early exposure, Christians who were exposed to this disease, um, their mortality rate lowered, survival rates increased. So interestingly, Christians survived the plague at a higher number than any other population of people in the Roman Empire. Second, um, simply because of the nursing and the care, survival rates shot through the roof. Meaning, where otherwise, a village, 100% mortality, if Christians would care for the sick and the dying, the survival rate would jump to 90%. All of a sudden, guess what happens? A family member that puts somebody out of their home because they were not willing to risk their family's life to spare the one, so so they spare the one to save the rest, they see Christians caring for the sick and the dying. They see Christians willing to die to preserve the life of people they don't even know. Word begins to spread. And many historians account that the spread of Christianity across the globe most significantly launched because specifically of the care of Christians during these plagues across the Roman Empire so that thousands accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior saying, I want what they have. Tens of thousands began to witness this incredible kind of extravagant love of friendship and community of selfless living. Millions of people heard the message of Jesus Christ first lived out through passionate action and compassion. That's your responsibility. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't get a huddle up in your house and hide, looking out the window at the dying and the sick. You and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our example, our way of life, is that Jesus put himself between the sick and the dying to take our sin sickness and our death on himself, transferring it onto him so that he died in our place. And as a response, we are willing to put ourselves between the sickness and the death of others so that we are willing to absorb their pain, their suffering, that they can live a new and radically different life through faith in Jesus Christ. That is our call. That is our mandate. How are you going into 2017, the rest of this year, in courageous life together with each other by discovering community and serving together? The two, two challenges I would give you is first, get plugged into a life group. If you are not in a life group, the way we function within LifeHouse Church is that we have life groups, we have tons of them, so you can't, I mean, no excuses, all right? We'll just stop right there, because if there's one that doesn't work for you, get into a leadership training process, and you start a life group. All right, second is don't just get plugged in a life group, start serving together. Find a place within the community of faith, within LifeHouse Church, within our city, where you can begin to serve in the name of Jesus Christ, and do it together now. Before you all run out of this message and you start doing something, time out. Let's remember this only works through faith in Jesus Christ. Relationships only work through Jesus Christ. Jesus changes everything. And so let's pause and say first, is my heart right with Jesus? If right now, when you look at your life, your heart is not right with Jesus, then your first step is to believe in Jesus by faith. Confess him as your Lord and Savior, ask him to forgive you of sin and give you new life. You need to have God pour in his love, his forgiveness and his relationship. Then and only then do you have anything to give out. If you are in right relationship with Jesus, are you living like it? Is your life resemble those two terrorists who were radically changed? or are you living more selfishly? And then let me ask you, are you in real community? Are you serving, serving others rather than serving yourself? So this is a moment just to pause and allow God's spirit to speak to us. What one step do you need to take right now to be in right relationship with God, right relationship with others and serving others more than yourself? Would you pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.